Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. State Attorney General Phil Weiser has announced the results of a month-long grand jury investigation into the death of Elijah McLean. In today's show, we'll have more on the charges and reaction from McLean's family. And we wrap up our series on policing with a look at why officers are leaving the force in greater numbers and the approach Boulder is taking to fill those positions. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. On the night of August 24, 2019, Elijah McLean, a young Black man, was stopped by police while walking home from a convenience store in Aurora. Stop. I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. Police were responding to a call about a suspicious-looking person, but McLean was not suspected of any crime. During the encounter, police restrained him with carotid holds, handcuffs, and other pain tactics. When paramedics arrived, they injected him with ketamine, a powerful sedative that caused him to lose consciousness. He never woke up and died a few days later after being taken off life support. McLean's story has become part of a national narrative about the sometimes dysfunctional relationship between police departments and the communities they're supposed to serve, a tragic example of law enforcement using excessive force against unarmed people of color. Last summer, protesters marched through city streets across the country, chanting the name of Elijah McLean, along with others, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all black lives lost to police violence. In February, the city of Aurora released the results of an independent investigation into Elijah McLean's death that found police officers and paramedics acted inappropriately at almost every point of the incident, starting with the decision to stop him on the street in the first place. Then, this Wednesday morning, Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser released the results of a months-long grand jury investigation into Elijah's death. The grand jury returned a 32-count indictment against Aurora police officers Randy Rodima and Nathan Woodyard, former Aurora police officer Jason Rosenblatt, and Aurora Fire Rescue Paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Peter for their alleged conduct on the night of August 24, 2019, that resulted in the death of Mr. McClain. The indictment levels charges against two Aurora police officers, a former Aurora police officer, and two Aurora fire rescue paramedics. Each of the five defendants faced one count of manslaughter and one count of criminally negligent homicide. The charges also include multiple counts of second-degree assault, among others. The Attorney General is now filing the indictment with the Adams County District Court. It is important to remind everyone that a grand jury indictment is a formal accusation based on determination of probable cause that an individual committed a crime under Colorado law. All defendants are presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Wednesday's announcement is remarkable because it remains rare for a grand jury to indict officers with criminal charges in similar cases involving police-involved killings. McLean family attorney Kusser Mohammed Bai called the moment historic. So yes, we're very uh, surprised, but also not surprised because we have all maintained that Elijah McLean was murdered. We hope that the jury who will be reviewing all this information will hold the uh, police officers accountable. McLean's mother, Shanine McLean, told Colorado Edition that she was feeling some relief at the grand jury findings. I'm grateful to the Attorney General Weiser and his team. I'm grateful to the grand jury and their findings. And I'm grateful that they saw what I saw, that my son was completely innocent and never should have been stopped by the police or brutalized by them. She learned of the indictments on Tuesday, just ahead of the public announcement. But I slept better last night than I have in a while. I wanted to share Elijah's story um, and his murder around the world, and my efforts um, are paying off. So there's a lot of people around the world that know that my son should still be alive today. Two of the charges in the indictment specifically mentioned the use of ketamine, the drug that was given to Elijah McLean during the encounter. The charges describe ketamine as a, quote, deadly weapon and allege that the paramedics involved used the drug intentionally to cause unconsciousness that was not for legal medical purposes. Last year, we reported extensively on the use of ketamine by paramedics during law enforcement encounters. Here's a piece of that reporting from KUNC investigative reporters Michael DeOanna and Ray Solomon. Ketamine is a controlled substance. So the state launched a waiver program allowing medics to use it for excited delirium. It's been allowed since 2013. KUNC requested a list of medical agencies that have waivers from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. That's the agency that oversees the program. There are 101 of them all around the state. From Greeley to Grand Junction. Boulder to Longmont. Colorado Springs to Aspen. And medics have used ketamine 902 times on people with supposed excited delirium in the last two and a half years. Paramedics were authorized to use ketamine to treat a condition called excited delirium, a rare medical emergency that puts the body into overdrive and can be fatal. Emergency doctors say ketamine is necessary to interrupt that process. But KUNC's investigations found the condition has been significantly overdiagnosed in Colorado. Here is more of that reporting from KUNC's investigation, starting with a doctor reacting to the body cam footage from Elijah McLean's arrest. It's pretty easy to say he doesn't come close to meeting the criteria for excited delirium. That's Dr. Mark DeBard, professor emeritus of emergency medicine at Ohio State University. He's among medical experts who helped define what makes up excited delirium. DeBard says the incidence rate of excited delirium should be about one case per 250,000 people per year. So is Colorado's rate normal? You had like 900 cases for a population of 5.8 million. If DeBard's math is right, It means medics are giving ketamine at a rate 15 times higher than expected. The city of Aurora banned paramedics from using ketamine earlier this year. And just recently in July, Governor Jared Polis signed a bill into law that limits medics' use of ketamine to sedate people in medical emergencies. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment followed up by suspending the waiver program that allowed ketamine to be used this way pending further review. Other investigations into McLean's death are still active, including a federal investigation into potential civil rights violations. 
and a civil lawsuit filed by McLean's family against the city of Aurora, as well as several individual police officers and emergency medical workers, is still ongoing. The family's attorney told KUNC that he's working with the named parties to negotiate a settlement. And we hope that the resolution comes in the not-too-distant future. KUNC will continue following this story as it unfolds. You can find our previous reporting on law enforcement's use of ketamine, as well as a conversation with Shanine McLean from earlier this year, at our website, KUNC.org. We're going to turn now to look at how policing is changing in Boulder. This week, we've examined officer mental health and how reform efforts are playing out at one apartment complex in town. Today, we wrap up our series Under Pressure with reporters Lee Patterson and Scott Franz, who are with us now to discuss why so many officers are getting out of policing and what's being done to fill these vacancies. Welcome to you both. Hi there. Hey. Lee, tell us about these retirements and resignations. How many officers are leaving and do we know where they're going? So much of my reporting focus on the Boulder County Sheriff's Office, so I'll start there. Last year, the department lost 32 deputies compared to an average of 15 over the previous five years. Sheriff Joe Pelly says that the patrol department in particular was having a hard time staffing shifts because of it. They were resigning to literally move to Montana or Wyoming or go to Missouri and start a chicken farm. And he says that many of these departures have had to do with one piece of Colorado's new police reform legislation, and that's the provision that removes qualified immunity, meaning that officers may be held personally liable for up to $25,000 for civil rights violations. Now, Lee, were you able to talk with any of the deputies who have left this particular department? I contacted many. Um, I did talk to a few, including Adam Gerke. He's a deputy who left the sheriff's office last fall. And since then, he and his family have moved to Alaska, where he's still a cop in a much smaller department. And what Adam told me mirrors much of what I heard from other people I talked to for this series, that the legislation was too much, that you could make a mistake and lose your savings because of it. Now, There were a few personal reasons for the move to Alaska for Adam, but he says that if last summer hadn't happened, he and his family would not have left Colorado. Is this something that's happening everywhere, or is it unique to Colorado, given the state's recent police reform legislation that you mentioned? It's a little hard to generalize. According to a recent national survey by a group called the Police Executive Research Forum, there's been an 18 percent increase in resignations and a 45 percent increase in retirements. In Colorado, I did talk with other departments, um, Aurora PD, Boulder PD, Steamboat PD. They've all reported major departures uh, you know, over the last year or year and a half. The tricky thing is that statewide numbers don't actually reflect this trend. The number of separations reported to the attorney general's office last year was actually down slightly compared to the previous couple of years. What do the sponsors of Colorado police reform legislation make of the fact that some departments are losing people? Representative Leslie Harrod was one of the prime sponsors of the police reform bill, and she's skeptical that the legislation has much to do with these early retirements and departures because, she says, departments in Other states without recent reforms are losing officers as well. And so what that says is that specific reform efforts aren't actually contributing to the attrition. She basically thinks there's been a culture shift that attitudes towards policing have changed. And I attribute that to the 
excessive use of force cases that we're seeing um, and the body camera footage that we're seeing of law enforcement officers harming the community, a lot of folks just don't want to associate with that and that kind of profession. And so I believe that the reform efforts that we're doing here in Colorado um, will eventually lead to better um, recruitment for higher quality law enforcement officers. I also talked with the criminal justice chair for the NAACP of Boulder County. His name is Darren O'Connor, and he was more blunt. In his words, if officers are leaving because they don't want to be held accountable, then good riddance. You know, the challenge then is to find replacements that honor that uh, responsibility, but it, it certainly shouldn't be beyond the capabilities of the police force to hire people and train them and so that they respect the authority and the power that they're given. Scott, I want to bring you into the conversation here. How is recruiting going a year after lawmakers passed all of these reforms? Well, Representative Herod is correct that some departments are starting to pursue a different cast of officers. They think that, you know, recruiting a different type of officer is key to their reform efforts. For example, in Boulder, Police Chief Maris Harold has a goal of recruiting 30% women officers. She says studies have shown that female officers don't use uh, force quite as often as, as male officers do. But on the other hand, Chief Harold also tells me that recruiting right now is really challenging and, and meeting those goals is going to be tough. The combination of the pandemic you know, the policing crisis after George Floyd murder, all of it adds up to it's a very hard time to attract talented people at a time where you really need um, top tier, service driven, educated police officers. So many departments are committed to changing who is doing the policing, but they worry those people will be hard to recruit right now because of the current climate around policing. So what are police doing to try to reach these people, you know, to try and overcome these challenges? For Harold, part of her strategy has been a sort of PR blitz. She's been appearing regularly in front of city councils, holding town meetings. Um, They're going through a master planning process. And she even stopped by to talk to high school students recently to, to get their thoughts. And she tells me some of this is already starting to get some results. And I just had a guy call me, just uh, he heard me on a town hall and he called and he goes, I'm 47 years old. I've been a professional my whole life. I've taken off this last year to watch my small children. But after hearing that policing really is a higher calling, he goes, you're right, and I want to be part of a service-driven agency. Scott, I also want to ask about the diversity of candidates. Some departments are trying to make their police forces more representative of the communities that they serve. How are those efforts being affected? Chief Harold says her department is not as diverse as she would like it to be. Uh, she says there are recruiting challenges in Colorado, um, but she stresses that she wants officers with a diversity of perspectives, people from different countries, backgrounds, different professions before they join the force, and ultimately well-educated. And research does indicate that the more education an officer has, the less likely they are to use physical force. Uh, Harold also recently told Boulder High School students that the murder of George Floyd, for example, showed the limits of only focusing on an officer's race. If you're not the dominant culture, usually you will go toward what the dominant culture is engaged in. And so As you saw with the Derek Chauvin case, there was a lot of diversity there with those police officers, but the dominant culture usually wins out. And so it's much more important to me to get 
people that think differently about policing. She's referring there to Chauvin's backup officers, some of whom are not white and are facing charges related to Floyd's murder. But during my reporting, I found that an officer's background is important to some. For example, at the San Juan del Centro Apartments in Boulder, Sonia Sarabia says many officers who used to patrol this mostly Hispanic community could not speak Spanish, and English-speaking children often had to translate for their parents when police came, uh, leading to some tension. In my case, I wouldn't trust my child to say, okay, for example, oh, I saw this person with a gun, or uh, I saw this person hitting someone. That child will not feel comfortable saying that to the officer. Fast forward to today, and the complex is patrolled by an officer who grew up in Mexico, and he says that helps him connect more easily with the residents and gain their trust. Do you have a sense of how this is going on a statewide level? Well, some national studies, like the survey from the Police Executive Research Forum that Lee mentioned, are showing the recruiting challenges so far are not as pressing as the officer resignations and retirements we're seeing. Many departments are still finding ways to fill out their ranks. It might just be taking them a little bit longer. But what I have heard is some are not getting the kinds of applications they're hoping for. Corey Christensen is the outgoing police chief in Steamboat Springs in northwest Colorado. Up until recently, he had also been leading a statewide police chief organization. I get a lot of applications for people who don't think they can get a job in another police agency, and they'll think I'm desperate. And, and they'll be like, yeah, I was fired three times for lying, but I know you need cops. And you can see why that might be a problem. Lee, let me bring you back in here for a moment. How have departures and then trouble hiring affected operations? Well, I think the situation is constantly changing, but uh, Joe Pelly, the Boulder County Sheriff, did say that staffing shortages have made it more difficult to prevent some types of crimes um, like auto theft, for example. So right now there's this whole catalytic converter theft thing going on that you heard about. And to stop that, really, you need staffing to do surveillance and follow folks around and set out some some bait cars. And, you know, and if you don't have the people to do that, it's hard to affect it. On the other hand, that department is making do with fewer people. Uh, Pelly described creating an online reporting system for low-level issues like losing a license plate rather than sending out deputies to respond to those calls. They're taking hundreds of reports a month this way. And Pelly also says that hiring within his department has stabilized somewhat. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. That's our reporters, Lee Patterson and Scott Franz. You can go to our website to check out their new series on policing in Boulder called Under Pressure. That's at KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The spread of coronavirus in Colorado has been trending upward in recent weeks, with the state's hospitalizations and positivity rate both inching up. And according to public health data from the state, over the last few weeks, COVID cases among children have been rising at a faster rate than cases among adults, a trend that coincides with the return to in-person learning. In the last month, state public health officials have identified outbreaks in 14 schools, as well as a handful of care centers, a summer camp, and a Bible camp. Everyone from students to administrators across the state are dealing with the rise in cases amid mask debates and widely varying community vaccination rates. Joining us now for a check-in on Colorado schools and COVID is Erica Melter, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Hi, Erica. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Let's start with the latest on COVID cases in schools. As I mentioned, the state's identified 14 outbreaks in the last month. How have these outbreaks impacted the day-to-day at these schools? Well, when you have an outbreak at a school, there is typically some people that have to transition to remote learning. And that was something that, of course, was uh, very frequent last school year and that people were hoping to see less of this school year. We do have new quarantine guidance that really reduces the number of students and staff that have to quarantine when there's a positive case in a classroom. But if you get above a certain number of cases, then the guidance still recommends a switch to remote learning. And of course, if people are, are actually sick and experiencing symptoms, then they can't be in school either. Right. I know quarantines in schools uh, have been a sort of a pain point in the last year. What does that process look like in schools now? Uh, has federal guidance changed anything in the last year? State and federal guidance have changed to um, relax who is considered a close contact and who would have to quarantine. But Colorado is not requiring school districts to follow particular quarantine protocols. That's up to local public health and to the school district. And in general, if both parties are wearing masks, or if there's a relatively high vaccination rate in the school, there might not be any quarantines at all. But you still have the situation where if someone is sick or someone was in close contact and not wearing a mask, um, that they may be recommended to quarantine. Okay. Well, I want to turn to the topic of masks in schools because that's been the focus of a lot of debate happening in the last month or so. Uh, Districts have put together, I would say, a patchwork approach. Uh, Some require masks, some for some districts, it's optional. With data showing a steep rise in cases among young children, where is the conversation about masks in schools uh, at in Colorado, generally speaking? We started the school year with the majority of districts recommending masks or having mask optional policies. Um, a few large districts like Denver Public Schools, as well as um, Westminster, Sheridan, did start the school year requiring masks for everyone, regardless of vaccination status. But what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is a trend towards more districts and more local public health agencies adopting mask requirements. So for example, just last week, the Greeley-Evans district adopted a mask requirement um, through middle school. We saw Pueblo County Public Health adopted a mask requirement that they are imposing on the two school districts down there. Tri-County Public Health, which includes Adams, Arapahoe, and Douglas County, has had a real political back and forth with first a mask requirement that allowed counties to opt out. And then when two of the three counties opted out and the third seemed about to opt out, they came back and sort of repassed the mask mandate. And I think what we're seeing is this tension between this rise in cases that is deeply concerning to public health officials. And they feel like we really need to be doing something to reduce transmission in schools versus um, a public that in some communities is has turned against masks and really wants this school year to be normal, meaning they just they do not want to have any pandemic protocols in place. They want to operate like it's a normal school year. They feel like kids are at low risk and we shouldn't be you know, doing all these, all these things that change the school experience for something that they feel is a relatively low risk. 
Well, I want to ask about testing, Erica. The state has about $173 million in federal relief to spend on free rapid tests for schools. And about 20 percent of schools in the state have signed up for a testing program that's funded through the same relief money. Districts participating range from rural to urban and from having a mask mandate to no mandate. What is the goal behind this? Well, the idea behind weekly testing is of symptomatic and asymptomatic people is that you would catch COVID cases early and those folks could isolate before the, before they had contact with a lot of people and you would reduce um, spread and you would reduce illness and you would reduce disruption to in-person learning. Um, a number of European countries had a very frequent school testing protocols last school year. It hasn't been anywhere near as common in the United States. There's been a few large urban districts that did it. And it's been interesting to note that, that Colorado schools haven't necessarily been rushing to take advantage of this. I think there's concerns about um, parental consent. I think there's some school districts may have their own testing protocols or arrangements with community organizations. And there may be, there probably are some communities where people feel like we don't need to be going out and actively looking for COVID cases. If people feel fine, we, they should, we should just assume that they're fine. And that again speaks to that difference in how people view the COVID risk and how, what they think we should be doing to um, limit the COVID risk. Right. Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how local hospitals are handling the latest surge in COVID-19 cases. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.